I believe that there is elegance in simplicity. And so, you know, start simple, start with the end in mind, have your goals of what you want to accomplish, and then continually evaluate your tool selection against that. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome back to our continuing series of conversations, Cloud Journey. In this series, we talk with Dustin Milburn, the field CTO of Cloud Services for InterVision, about the impacts and the changes you need to make as you embark and continue on your cloud journey. Our first discussion in this series focused on the single most important consideration for a successful journey, your people. Last time we talked to Dustin, we dove into the processes that will need to change as you progress on your journey. Today, Dustin and I are going to dig into the third dimension you need to consider tools. Welcome back, Dustin. Hey, Jeff. It's great to be back. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Of the three dimensions, this is probably the one that I'm most curious about personally, because I've I've not really had a chance myself to use a lot of the, the tools that you run into in cloud. So let's jump right in. I imagine most, if not all of the tools used in an IT shop, have to change. Am I right about that? Well, yes and no. The previous two discussions we had around people and process are really going to inform the tooling, right? And if we get the people and process part right up front, the tooling should more often than not become pretty obvious to organizations. And there's no one right model for any client or any customer or any organization Ultimately, it's about choosing the right sets of tools that align with what you're trying to do with your people and processes that ultimately get you to what your end game is. And everybody's adoption of the cloud is a little bit different. Um, Some organizations look to the cloud to consume more native services, and they're they're not necessarily provisioning workloads in a dynamic manner. And that's great because that's what their workloads are predicated on, right? So they're going to leverage the cloud more as an as a service type of offering. But organizations that are transforming the way that they develop and deliver uh, applications, if they're doing software development, if they're adopting and everything is code model, then yeah, more than likely the the tools are going to change. And then the last dimension that I really encourage organizations to consider is, are they going to be hybrid cloud? Are they going to be multi-cloud? Because the answers to those questions are going to dramatically affect the tooling that they choose in order Mm -hmm. to support their work. Are there some major categories we can we can dive into, major categories of tools that our listeners may need to consider, at least review as they're starting down this path? Yeah. So I like to start with organizations and thinking about the platform as a living entity. And we've discussed this, I think, in past podcasts that the platform consists of, of six layers, right? You have your infrastructure layer. So the the hardware that actually runs the workloads. Then you've got your application, the code that is unique and differentiated to delivering the value proposition that your users consume. 
You've got the data layer, right? Why you even have the application in the first place to get at the information you want and need in order to um, do something or make a, a choice on how you interact with your users. Uh, then you've got your security layer, right? And it's everything that goes in with traditional security, border perimeter security, as well as how you harden your approach towards developing and delivering workloads. Mm-hmm. You have your policy layer, what governs the uh, the entire structure of the platform, what's acceptable, what's not. And then you have your pipeline. And this is really where your tooling comes most heavily into play around um, how you enable your organization and staff to be able to develop and deliver products into those six layers. Mm-hmm. And most organizations that are, are really taking a lock, stock and barrel approach at consuming cloud and all the native things that it, it comes to offer from a value proposition are building all six of those layers out as a code base. And, and that's a dramatic shift from traditional provisioning of you know, a, a software development lifecycle and all the tools that support it. So, yeah, we can dive into into all those areas. But I think the most dramatic departure for most organizations is that they're going to provision everything they do now as a code base. And that means redefining their CI, CD pipeline and tool chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a huge change for a lot of organizations, because as we talked in people, it's a mind shift change. And as we talked in process, it turns your process upside down. So it only makes sense that it would also drive some tooling changes. But before we dive into that, let's let's take a look at each one of those categories and just describe perhaps some of the tools, whether you want to use brand names or, or not, but just some of the types of tools. Uh, and let's start with the infrastructure layer. What are some things that might be changing as they migrate to the cloud at that level? Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to provision cloud-based infrastructure. Um, you know, Amazon, Google, Azure, they've all made it very easy to be able to log into a console, select the machine type and storage type and ingress and egress speeds and, you know, all those different uh, parameters relative to the infrastructure. They make it very easy to log into the console, select what you want, provision it, and poof, it's up and running. Mm-hmm. Now, That's great, but if you really want to optimize and harness the power of the cloud, you know, the value there is that you only pay for what you use. So if somebody logs into the console and they do that manually and provision a workload, the chances are pretty good if they've got one workload to manage, they'll remember to go back in and shut it back down when it's done. Mm -hmm. But most organizations don't have just one workload. So the problem becomes now, how do I maintain all these different instances that I've provisioned? How am I aware of how they're being utilized? And how am I making sure that when they're not being utilized, I'm not paying for those instances because they're shut down? And this now becomes a problem of automation and also one of what happens if the guy that knows how to do that goes on vacation, right? So right. organizations now have to look at leveraging tooling to do that. So let's let's take a look at AWS for a moment. They have what's called an infrastructure as cloud uh, approach that they use something called cloud formation to be able to do that. They, they enable companies to say, I want to provision a, a virtual machine or a compute instance that has four CPUs and 64 gigs of RAM. And I want it to have 
you know, X number of IOPS and I want to provision an S3 storage bucket. And you can do all that either through logging in through the console or you can use CloudFormation and it's a code base to provision those workloads. And that's great because organizations uh, can now let that guy go on vacation. He can write the scripts for it and it doesn't slow <laughs> the developers down from doing their work when they need to provision those workloads. Right. But what if I'm in multiple clouds? Um, and now, or I've got I've got workloads on premise and in the cloud, and where cloud formation doesn't necessarily span for somebody who fits that mold. So organizations like HashiCorp have come up with an infrastructure's code base called Terraform that enables you to use the same basic code base and construct to provision workloads across any p- cloud provider or even in your own data center. Yeah, I was going to ask about that as we go through these layers. I would imagine that, as you said at the outset whether you're going to be hybrid or multi-cloud will really impact some of these decisions. So I'm glad you talked about HashiCorp there. I think we had an episode a few months ago with them about some of the challenges that they've seen and the way that uh, their tool can solve that. So thanks for pulling that out. Let's jump to the app layer. What are some of the tools that our listeners need to be aware of at that app layer? Yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting is if you think about um, how you uh, can develop an application, right? There's a couple different ways you can do it. And by the way, you know, I'm going to let out the dirty secret here, which is most great application developers or coders very rarely write unique code, right? They're going in there, borrowing bits from other pieces that have that fit well together, and then they're making it all work together. So, and that's brilliant, right? Don't, yeah. don't oh, work yeah. harder yeah. than you have yeah. to reuse. So, but, you know, so you can start from scratch and you can go assemble code and, and get it to do what you want. But one of the things the public cloud providers have made it easy to do is say, hey, well, maybe I don't, maybe I, there's already code bases out there for me to consume that enable me to spin up workloads that look like X or Y. Mm-hmm. So they've made it easy to, at the application development layer, say, I'm going to start with the foundational elements that I can consume natively out of those cloud providers and just use those as opposed to having to go build it all myself. Yeah. So if you're not a heavy dev shop, do you have to pay attention to tooling at this app layer? Well, gosh, it's a great question. I mean, where it comes into play, and now you're starting, you're, the question you're asking is going to lead us right into the data layer, right? Okay. Um, so a lot of the types of applications that non-development shops tend to leverage are what are called COTS applications or mm-hmm. uh, commercial off-the-shelf applications. So you can think about your your organizations like SAP or Oracle, right? They provide a suite of products and tools that provide you as the consumer a level of flexibility to customize them to meet your needs, but you're never going to go in and change the underlying code. The providers are going to do that for you. So where you can now think about the cloud as a value proposition is underneath a lot of those applications, they've got a data layer, right? All these these types of applications have got some sort of database underneath Mm -hmm. them. And what the cloud providers have done to make it really easy for organizations to consume those COTS types applications to do is, you know, you can port everything over or take a lift and shift approach to it, and that's fine, but you may find a lot more cost efficiency and effectiveness by taking the application, moving it over, and instead of paying for those expensive database licenses, consume some of their more native database services. And they have everything for uh, SQL-based as well as no SQL-based uh, database services that you can consume natively from the cloud providers 
offset some of your licensing costs and still get all the value that high-speed, high-transactional data layer requires. So it's emulating whatever the database was that the uh, COTS authors used when they created, basically. Yeah, similar to me. It might be a different database, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, you might be migrating from a traditional Oracle to MySQL. And as long as the, the COTS application allows for the use of that kind of a database, then you can do that. Other vendors, especially Microsoft-heavy applications, tend to use a Microsoft SQL backend. Right. Once you go into Azure, they provide native SQL Server instances for you to help offset some of that, that cost and, and operationalization. Gotcha. Gotcha. So are there other data related tools that our listeners need to be aware of? So moving applications into the cloud and the efficiency that you get by leveraging those types of cloud-based database stores and, and even um, object stores make it really easy and efficient and cost-effective to maintain huge amounts of data up in the cloud. Now, that's great because you've got a lot of intelligence about your users. And if you have a good data strategy, then you can turn that data into really actionable information uh, that helps inform a good strategy for your business moving forward. But taking advantage of that is hard, especially if you haven't done any data management in the past, right? Yeah. So how do you now take data that comes out of databases and you've got files, you've got structured data, you've got unstructured data, you probably have other sources of data that sit outside of your application. You know, it could come from Salesforce. It could come from uh, an SAP database. There's all sorts of different vectors from where these pieces of data about our, our users and about our consumers come from? How do I bring all those together into one place and turn that data into actionable information? Now, I can certainly go build a data lake myself. I can stand up a good data management structure and strategy. By the way, having a solid master data management strategy for your organization is going to be critical, especially as you start to provision data sources and consume from data sources. But how do I normalize all these different uh, angles from where data arrives and make sense out of it? What the cloud providers have done have made it really easy is they've provided AI and ML and data analytics platforms to help you get rid of the heavy lift of standing up those types of services yourself and then just consuming them using the native tools that they are really good at providing already anyway. I mean, think about AWS and, and Google in particular. Who's better at aggregating data than those companies? That's yeah. what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So taking advantage of their algorithms, their structures, and their technology is a huge lift, especially for small organizations who are just getting started. Let's turn our attention now to the fourth layer and security, because that, uh, as you've been going through this, I realize that these layers build and build and build upon each other. Having just talked about data, now let's talk about how we secure it and what tools we need to use or be aware of in the cloud. Well, yeah, you know, in the last episode, Jeff, I recall we talked about the shared responsibility model. Yes. And... Yeah, and, and, and this has really transformed the way that organizations have to think about and approach security. Um, you know, you're no longer responsible for the physical layer of security, which is great. That takes an operational burden away from your organization. However, you do need to think now about the way that you provide added layers of security to the rest of your platform stack. And so having those checks and balances in place become paramount, especially if you're in a highly regulated industry. 
So a lot of organizations will embed some of the security elements into their CI, CD pipeline and tool chain. The way they validate it is at the security layer. So they make sure that their data is secure, that you know bad actors stay out and that nefarious code or changes into an environment don't get injected. But they, they have to think about it from a tooling perspective. When we get to the, the pipeline layer, we'll talk kind of about a day in the life of a, of a developer and where they need to think about hardening, uh, putting steps in place to ensure code coverage and code quality. But you know, for those organizations that are consuming COTS-based applications, it's incumbent upon them to really focus on, understand the shared responsibility model and be able to uh, put the checks and balances in place to assure that they've adopted that model fully. Mm-hmm. And that's where like going through a well-architected review, for example, might be advantageous for customers to say, hey, I, d- I think I've got this secure, but I just want another set of eyes on it to make sure that we've actually done it to spec. Yeah. Is that also where some of the the automation layer comes in when you're deploying devices and you want to make sure that they're secure? Automating that process helps you replicate good practices? Yeah, well, automation is uh, can be both great and it can also be terrifying well, right? yeah. because it makes it really easy to provision good workloads fast and repeatedly, but you get one bad... Uh, you get one bad environment built with a security hole in it, and you can do that very fast and repeatedly as well. So where organizations really look to is this concept around shifting left and embedding security by design. You were starting to hear these terms much more frequently, especially as new kinds of compliance standards like GDPR come into play, for example. Embedding security by design and proving that that is part of how you design, develop, and deliver your platforms is incumbent upon the providers to not only do it, but also prove that they've done it. And in building that in as an automation step is ultimately what's going to yield the best results because trying to manually recreate security steps every time you go run a static code analysis every single time and make that a manual event is going to be pretty, pretty much impossible for organizations to manage, especially in an agile software development world where, you know, you might be introducing hundreds of changes a day. And so in order to get all of those in manually, it's almost impossible. So automating security checks and then automating the audit trail of those security checks is really incumbent upon uh, modern organizations that are, especially those that are adopting the cloud. Let's talk now about the fifth layer. And it's one that I wouldn't have thought about in relation to tooling and tools. And that's the policy layer. What types of tools will our listeners need to be aware of as they're on their cloud journey at the policy layer? Yeah. So obviously the policies that to which your organization is uh, beholden is predicated based on the industry that you're in, right? Um, the way that you manage protected data. Do you have PII, personally identifiable information about users? And if so, if it got out into the wild, what would the risk be? And because companies assume a level of financial and fiduciary responsibility when they start maintaining information about customers. And so having a policy and a policy starts out with, you know, kind of writing it down on a piece of paper. Right. And and it can be anything from as simple as before a new piece of code gets introduced into production, it has to undergo these checks. 
or it might be something as simple as this is what a standard build manifests and spec looks like uh, before it's able to move from one environment to the next. Having that first written down on paper is great. But if we go back to what we were talking about in from a security perspective, trying to man- maintain that uh, in a manual process mm-hmm. is almost impossible. So having tooling in place that says, this is what the policy of our organization is, and here's how we're going to govern it. And then having a way to automatically ensure that code follows those steps as it goes through the pipeline is really becoming more and more incumbent. So since we were talking about HashiCorp earlier, you know, they've got a product called Sentinel, which is policy by design and policy as code that helps organizations really think about how they harden and maintain structure in a world where it's really easy to consume at will. Let's move now to the sixth layer and one I've been looking forward to, and that's the pipeline, because I think there's a lot of tooling and a lot of process change that goes on at this layer, especially if you're an agile development shop. So talk us through some of the things that we have to be thinking about when it comes to the pipeline layer. Well, it's a great question, Jeff. So one thing I think about when we talked at the beginning of this is what's fundamentally different about the consumption of the cloud is organizations that they really want to do it well and get full value out of it, especially if they're developing their own workloads. Moving to an everything is code base is going to become fundamentally paramount to a set of best practices and behaviors. So now I've taken traditional infrastructure engineers and I've transformed them into software developers. I've also taken traditional data engineers and I've given more of a software development aspect to their job and security folks and everybody else on all the rest of the layers of the platform. So I need something that enables me to automate the flow of those changes at the code level all the way through so that everybody can still do their job. If you think back 20 years ago, that that continual struggle between software development and infrastructure and operations, Mm -hmm. well, I'm waiting for an environment. Well, I'm waiting for your requirements to build the environment. Well, I don't know what they are because I haven't started developing and I don't know what to develop yet, right? Yeah. 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 We get rid of that where now you can provision a workload very easily with code and we make that part of that pipeline. And so the day in the life of of anybody inside of your organization is change, right? I go in, I check out a piece of code. I make a change to it. I want to run a unit test on that. I want to make sure that it passes all of my code coverage and code quality checks. I want to make sure that all the libraries I have are up to date. None of them are out of date and have security considerations or concerns associated with them. I want to run static code analysis. I want to run dynamic code analysis, right? All those checks and gates. And then once I've done all of my due diligence automated through that pipeline, I want to assemble my code, check it back in, build it and move it to the next environment. And the thought of trying to do that, again, in an agile software development world where some organizations are literally making hundreds, if not thousands of changes a day, doing that in a manual fashion is just a practical impossibility. So looking at that entire process of how software goes from a change and all the way into production has got to be automated. And that's what's called our continuous integration and continuous delivery or continuous deployment methodology. And there's, I really want to talk about the differences between those two Ds, their delivery and deployment. 
some organizations will, and, and they have a risk tolerance that if changes get all the way through to production because of the type of data they maintain or because of the way they've fully hardened their environment, their risk is super low and they're fine with what we call no-touch deployments. The software developer can make the change and get it all the way to production without any humans getting involved. And that's continuous deployment. Continuous delivery gets your software to a point where you've got a, a gold image that is ready to be deployed at any point in time. That last step may still require somebody to initiate that uh, mm -hmm. deployment, but organizations will choose generally one of those two flavors. And the thought of doing that manually just has become daunting. I mean, can you, you know, if you think back to your days of running an infrastructure and operations group, if you had to go ahead and deploy a hundred times a day, would you be ready to do that? <laughs> no way. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, if you did, even if you had to do it 10 times a day, the chance for human error getting introduced on one of those is high and you couldn't blame somebody for making a mistake, Right especially in, in work that's that repetitive. So automating those types of things is critical. And when I help organizations do this, you know, just as a general rule, I'd say anything you have to do more than once, automate it because your chances are you're going to have to do it again and you don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about the tools as they apply to these six layers, but it seems to me there's another set of tools as you migrate to the cloud on your cloud journey that perhaps many in our listening audience haven't considered. And, and I'm thinking specifically here, the financial tools or the cost optimization tools, because to really take true advantage of the cloud, you need some tooling to help with that. So can you talk us through what some of those tools might look like? Sure. Yeah. So obviously AWS makes it real easy to, to look at your billing and, and as does Azure, as does Google, you know, all the, the major public cloud providers make it really easy to get transparency into what you're spending and, and how it's being spent. But if we kind of go back to that, where we started with everything is code, part of, part of good cost management is not only understanding how much you're spending, but also where you're spending it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that cloud providers make it very easy to do is what's called tagging of your instances. So any workload that you provision in the public cloud has metadata or can have metadata associated with it. And it could be anything from, you could say department, you could say project, you could say person. And organizations that are, are provisioning their workloads and tagging those instances with the metadata so that they can get a much more granular level, not only on how they're spending money, but where it's being spent. So for example, if I'm running a software development shop and I, I sell five different products, let's say I sell tennis shoes, I sell socks, I sell tennis balls, I sell tennis rackets, and I sell hats. I would want to know if the piece of code I'm working on enables the sale of all those things or is focused on any one of those products so that I can yeah, not only yeah. see the cost associated with selling those products, but then in turn, I could also track the revenue that I receive from selling those products and then do some cost benefit analysis against them. So organizations that are really getting full power out of the cloud are absolutely harnessing the value of tagging their instances. And if we go back to automating that, if I check out a piece of code as a developer and we can make it so ATM easy that, oh, I know that this developer is associated with the sneaker project. So I'm going to automatically tag their instances with these pieces of metadata. 
and still give them the freedom to change it if they need to dynamically. Mm -hmm. But you know, that that's one place. So start with a good understanding of what your workloads are, where they're going and continually. And this kind of goes back to our conversation on processes. Don't be afraid to change it. If you find that that financial model and that tagging model isn't working for you, change it, right? Make sure you've got the metrics that make the most sense for your organization to measure success or not success. So that's, that's one piece. Then the other piece is have a way to analyze that information. You know, so the cloud providers have some native tools to look at your dashboard, to still down where you're spending the most money and where you could even potentially save some money. AWS's well-architected review, one of the pillars of that is cost optimization. So going through an analysis of your environment and understanding if you are well-architected for taking advantage of the best cost savings that you possibly can is one way to do it. You know, at InterVision, we have a product called our Cloud Cost Optimization, and it's a service that we offer where we come in and we guarantee savings against our customers' existing spend in the cloud. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a number of different ways to get at it, but the reality is you, you've got to measure it. You've got to understand what financial success looks like and what goes into your costs so that you can make decisions moving forward on not only where you want to invest, but where you might consider some cost optimization. Well, Dustin, as you know, from being a guest on Status Go before, we are all about action. We like to leave our listeners with a solid call to action that they can go execute tomorrow because they listen to us today. So what are one or two things that our listeners should do with regards to tools on their cloud journey? Well, two are readily obvious to me, Jeff. So one is... Uh, the KISS policy or the KISS practice, right? Keep it simple, stupid. I yep. I have told many, many people that, that have asked me, well, what's the best pipeline or what's the best tool for this or what's the best solution for uh, this problem over here? And fundamentally, I believe that there is elegance in simplicity. And so, you know, start simple, start with the end in mind, have your goals of what you want to accomplish and then continually evaluate your tool selection against that. The second part of it is really continually rationalize what you're making investments in and whether or not you can need to continue to do that. Um, organizations acquire a massive amount of technical debt by not continually evaluating or rationalizing their tool sets. And many organizations find value in not only just do, going through that exercise on their own, but sometimes having a third party come in and do that with them uh, is kind of eye-opening. You, you get not only an objective uh, observation of what they see, but also that experience of what the rest of the industry is doing, how they're solving these right. problems, and maybe some ways to save additional cost in your tool chain as well. That's Great action steps for our listeners to go out and do. Thank you for that, Dustin. Now, sure. back in the day on Saturday Night Live, there was this huge competition between Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Alec Baldwin about the number of times that they were guests on Saturday Night Live. I think you are winning the Status Go contest because this has got to be at least three episodes I know of and maybe a fourth episode that you've done on status go. So I really want to thank you for taking the time and talking with us today, because I know what a commitment it is. And I really appreciate it. And we'll probably have you back for another episode or two in the future. 
Well, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. I love having these conversations. And quite honestly, even just thinking about them out loud helps remind me why I do what I do and, and how we can continue to help organizations improve. Tools. One of the big three when it comes to change while on your cloud journey. If you haven't caught our first two episodes in the Cloud Journey series, where we discuss the first two dimensions, people and process, stream or download those today. In the meantime, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Dustin Milberg. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.